I've been working on China's uh, growth and development uh, all, all, my, all my career. Yeah. So, but I feel that in the past 10 years in particular, there's a need for students and uh, you know, fellow colleagues, um, historians in particular, to have a book such as you know, uh, what I have done to understand China's long-term economic growth and development um, every 100 years. So that will give students and uh, historians a sort of con more complete picture rather than just you know, dynasties or just a few hundred years, especially towards modern period. So I hope I'm making a contribution to the understanding of China in the longer run. China wasn't considered a segment of Asia until about, I would say, 1700, until uh, very recent, uh, you know, 15, 20 years. So this is a quite long period uh, in modern sense, but compared to China's very long-term history, uh, it was nothing. Yeah? The reason for China to be considered as the segment of Asia was because China lost all the wars with foreign powers. Um, that was uh, mainly during the uh, 19th century, and also in the beginning of the earlier century, uh, 20th century. Um, so uh, to the worst, China lost one third of its uh, territory. That's one thing, that's a political uh, issue and the sovereignty issue. On the other hand, China's per capita income dropped continuously for about you know, a good part of 100 years. China used to be um, you know, quite a wealthy country. Um, China's GDP, total GDP, counted for about 30% of the world in around 1800. But by the time of 1900, China's share of total world GDP dropped to one digit, yeah, it's about five, three to five percent. So that was actually quite a shock uh, to everyone. Yeah, so China was actually quite rightly called the sick man of Asia. This is a very tough question because people tend to mix these two uh, together. Now, as a entity of culture. China certainly is known for its richness in uh, rituals, in Confucius uh, sort of a practice. Um, the, the best way to describe it is familyism. You know, everything in China is surrounded and supported by families. Yeah? So that, that is has nothing to do with the entity as a political unit. Then we have another side of China. China is an empire. And the empire uh, occupied about 70% of Chinese long-term history. And that is the most outstanding feature uh, of China in world history. The other 30% of Chinese history uh, during those times, China was fragmented uh, into smaller states, but that was not the mainstream of China. So in a way, yes, uh, at the grassroots level, you have a lot of culture. 
a lot of familyism, a lot of support between family members and communal spirit. But on the top, you have an umpire system, which is totalitarian. Yeah? So people have to struggle between these two poles, if you, if you like. So to understand China needs to understand both. Karl Marx coins this term called the Asiatic mode of production. He actually get this idea from mainly from India. So his basic notion is that uh, you have a centrally controlled uh, society unlike Western Europe, and you have an almighty state uh, allocates resources like water, land, labor, technology, and so on and so forth. Therefore, therefore, in India, he says, there's no history. India has no history because uh, this uh, almighty state uh, takes away too much of surplus. So uh, in society, uh, there's no change. Yeah, there's no possibility of any change take, to take place. But that's not true. That's not China. China experienced four major changes and the revolutionaries in the past. I can briefly mention, first of all, the Han dry farming revolution with iron tools. Number two, Tang rice farming revolution with the expansion of Chinese paddy farming in the south. Number three, the Song economic revolution with a lot of commercialization, heavy industry, a lot of shipping. And number four is the proto-welfare revolution. Uh, this was during the Ming and Qing period. And the government supports the population with farming reliefs, with uh, you know, uh, price control of food. So there's no major farming, for example, during the Qing dynasty from 1644 to 1911. So that, that was remarkable. Until 1949, nobody would consider these two concepts uh, fitted for Chinese history. Right? Um, first, of all, first of all, China was not feudal. Secondly, China was not capitalistic. Not feudal because there's no title, official title, or offices which can be passed on to your sons. Yeah? So every new generation will have to go through schooling and imperial examinations to get recognized as talented man. Then you will be, if you are lucky, you will be uh, appointed to an official place. So this is actually bureaucratic. Uh, a system is a bureaucratic monarchy. It was not feudal. Secondly, China was not a capitalist society simply because peasantry, um, they, they, the peasantry were free and they actually own their own land. Right? Therefore, there's no separation between the labor force and the capital. Therefore, there's a, you know, something's missing, which is the uh, proletariat. So the Chinese were all family farmers, yeah. So they, they farm their own farm. Um, so the problem is that once um, Karl Marx's idea of class struggle uh, was introduced by the Communist Party of China, 
uh, scholars try to put this street junket uh, onto Chinese history as a body. So that's the reason why, that's the reason why these two concepts were misused in China. Song Economic Revolution was really the pioneer of what we call intensive growth with a lot of heavy industry yeah, in the world. And uh, Song uh, growth was very promising until uh, the, uh, the Mongols came. So the Song story was basically ended by the Mongol conquest. So once the Mongols controlled China's territory, things start to happen. A, all the commercial uh, sector was taken over by Mongols, uh, Arabs, Persians, and Europeans like Marco Polo. No Chinese were allowed to actually uh, engage with trade, especially long distance trade. And secondly, secondly, um, the uh, technical part of the economy, for example, mining and uh, industries uh, uh, certainly now were controlled by the Mongols for the Mongols' uh, further conquest of re the rest of Asia, shipbuilding as well. So the Chinese were pushed back to farming sector. They were only allowed to farm. So that ended the Song economic revolution. Great pity, great pity in history. Modern imperialism uh, was viewed uh, rather negatively, first of all, by the Qing uh, elite. Uh, that was because of the confrontational approach uh, or gambled uh, diplomacy adopted by, for example, the British. So that was the beginning of the Chinese losing all the wars. So that happened during the Opium War, two Opium Wars, and the Sino-French War, Sino-Japanese Wars, twice, and so on and so forth. So um, the lesson learned from this was actually a social Darwinian struggle. It's basically the you know, rule of the jungle. So uh, since the Chinese were the on the recipient end of this war, the violence. So they think, you know, you know, the, the Europeans and the Japanese, they, you know, they didn't actually do us any good. Plus, you have open trade. You have all sorts of, you know, sort of a evil coming to China. Yeah. So that was the reason. But this is uh, there's a double standard. In fact, Russia controlled more Chinese territory than any other powers. So, but because the Chinese Communist leadership, they uh, basically uh, do not allow people to criticize either Russia or Soviet Union. Yeah? So you ha we have you know, China's, uh, it's called Chinese Siberia, still controlled by the Russians, and we have China's uh, Chinese uh, Central Asia controlled by the Russians and also an informal colony in the form of Outer Mongolia still controlled in a way by the Russians. So in a way, yes, you know, two types of you know, imperialisms. One is the Western condemned by the Chinese, the other one is Russian one, not criticized.
double standards. Westernization movement was forced upon by uh, foreign demands. So the Chinese elite uh, was made to believe unless uh, you joined you know, the uh, bandwagon, you're not going to make it. Therefore, the door was open, uh, mainly forced open. And uh, the westernization actually produced a lot of good results. Yeah? For example, new uh, knowledge and technology, um, new industry, especially arms industry, uh, new firearms, uh, new transport like railways, uh, like you know, uh, new shipping vessels, and uh, also um, new way of organizing, for example, China's uh, custom services. Yeah, that's the uh, first modern uh, bureaucracy on China's soil, and also uh, you know, uh, education, Western education. So that is uh, actually the pluses. The minuses is uh, the, as the following. Um, China starts to doubt its own Confucius value and the governors. So they start to adopt Western way of thinking in terms of how to organize Chinese society. And secondly, China stopped uh, behaving like uh, sort of the center of Asia, and China starts to become a follower. Yeah. So be uh, put it this way, China used to be a, a master uh, in the Asian sort of a little universe, and uh, gradually China sort of was downgrade itself as a student. So that you know is actually not good for the for the Chinese ego. So we have pluses and minuses.